0: Hi, everyone. This is Kate Stanton, co-host of The Pulse Podcast. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Bassem Mikhail, SVP of the Clinical Enterprise at Somatis. Started in 2016 by Dr. Ikena Okazi, Somatis partners with clinicians, health plans, health systems, and multidisciplinary community-based care teams to improve health, quality of life, and cost of care for patients with kidney disease. So employs over 1,450 team members and serves more than 150,000 patients across 36 states. Dr. McHale and I discuss the vital role that kidneys play in maintaining health, the issues that arise from diseased kidneys, and how these challenges translate into per-patient costs that are 10 times higher on average than those for patients without kidney disease. The traditional model for treating patients with chronic kidney disease, CKD, and end-stage kidney disease, ESKD, and how Somatis' model realigns incentives to focus on integrated, preventative, and patient-centric care. Why the federal government, CMS, and CMMI have prioritized investments in kidney care, and what we've learned from their initiatives and care model tests. And finally, clinical innovations that make Dr. McHale optimistic about the future for patients living with kidney disease. Dr. Mikhail, thanks so much for joining me on The Pulse. How are you doing today?
1: Hi, Kate. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on The Pulse. It's great to be with you.
0: So we have a tradition of asking our guest an icebreaker to kick off our episodes. So when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up?
1: Yeah, I I knew from an early age, Kate, that I wanted to grow up to become a physician. Part of that for me was an interest and fascination with learning how our body worked, And then a big part of it for me also was my father, who's a physician, seeing and hearing about how he took care of patients and his passion for that as I was growing up had a big influence on me and on shaping what I wanted to pursue in my own career.
0: Tell me about your path to becoming a nephrologist specifically.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's a few things that drew me to nephrology. First was the intellectual complexity. As I studied renal physiology when I was in medical school, I was really drawn to the incredible complexity and how intricately our kidneys function. The manner by which our kidneys maintain homeostasis in our bodies is really elegant, and I was drawn to understanding such nuanced physiology as I was learning that in medical school. And then as I went on to my clinical years, I really loved the practice of nephrology for a few reasons. One, because the kidneys play such a central role in managing our overall health related to all of our other organ systems, treating patients with kidney disease requires a very holistic view for each patient. One of my clinical mentors, as I was training, told me to be an excellent nephrologist, you have to also be an excellent internist. I really enjoyed general medicine and being able to still incorporate the principles of general medicine, even within my specialty practice of nephrology. So I really liked that aspect. The other thing that really drew me to nephrology is the wide spectrum of disease acuity that we manage in nephrology. So we see patients who are very, very sick with kidney failure in the intensive care unit. We see patients on general medical floors in the hospital and then of course take care of patients in the outpatient clinic or in the dialysis clinic setting. And I like being able to practice across that full spectrum of clinical acuity and and also really importantly, maintain longitudinal relationships with my patients, whether I was seeing them in clinic outside the hospital or I was seeing them when they were hospitalized. The the last thing also I'd mention is my dad is a nephrologist as well. And so I really enjoyed getting to sort of follow in his footsteps and share that experience with him.
0: So you did your residency and fellowship at MGH and now you're at Somatis. So why was Somatis the, the next move for you?
1: So starting when I was in college, Kate, and really going on through the rest of my medical training, I had always been thinking about how I could have broad impact on as many patients as I could. You know, when I was an undergraduate, I studied economics. I had an interest in health policy when I was in college prior to going to medical school. Ultimately, I I learned after spending a summer working in health policy that that probably wasn't quite the right fit for me at that point in my career. But I decided to pursue an MBA for management training when I was in medical school because I knew that the macroeconomic trend was going to force a change in how healthcare is delivered in a way that had to be done at a lower cost. And so I I wanted to be equipped as a physician to be able to drive that change in care delivery organizations. And my experience at HBS was really pivotal for me to understand how to lead and drive change in organizations. As I went throughout the rest of my training and as I thought about this change in nephrology specifically, kidney care had really started to undergo a a major transformation in the way that care was being delivered to patients with kidney disease. And Somatis, through our our co-founder and CEO, Dr. Akena O'Casey, had really created the truly value-based kidney care space back in 2016. So I, I got connected with Akena and I saw his vision for revolutionizing the delivery of kidney care to focus on delaying disease progression and re-centering care to be where it should be, which is patient-centered and integrated. For me, joining the Somatis team provided an opportunity for me to help to lead this transformation in kidney care and help many, many thousands of patients across the country to improve their outcomes and their quality of life. And I'm really fortunate in my role. I'm still able to practice nephrology and see patients, even while I work alongside my colleagues at Somatis, to set the strategies to really bring better care and support for patients living with chronic kidney disease and end-stage kidney disease across the country.
0: You started to allude to this, but I'd love to uh, get a brief overview of Somatis, as well as your role in the organization and your key responsibilities.
1: Yeah. So Somatis was founded back in 2016, and the goal and the mission is to revolutionize kidney care and become the world's best provider of integrated kidney care. And so at Somatis, we partner with nephrologists, primary care physicians, with health plans, with health systems all across the U.S. to provide integrated care for patients with or at risk of kidney disease. We're operating in about 36 states currently, caring for over 150,000 patients across the U.S. And our focus, Kate, is is not being a fee-for-service dialysis provider, but instead being a value-based kidney care provider. So to do that, we leverage care teams, multidisciplinary care teams across the country who are able to meet with patients in their home. We leverage a really rich technology solution, and then we'll work really closely with our physician partners to serve as an extension of their practice to transform how kidney care is delivered for them away from the sort of reactive nature of in-center dialysis where a lot of kidney care had historically been delivered to instead being very proactive focusing on preventative care, delaying disease progression, and improving quality of life for patients to bend the curve of disease morbidity and really improve patient outcomes. So that's kind of a little bit about Somatis, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that as we go on. In my role at Somatis, so I serve as the Senior Vice President of the Clinical Enterprise at Somatis. So I help to lead our efforts, and I work closely with our clinical teams, our technology teams, our physician engagement teams to build and deliver our, our clinical model and care to all of our patients. So that entails working to innovate and advance our clinical model over time as we partner with physicians across the country and to improve patient outcomes together. And then in addition to working with our health plan partners, I think one other thing I'd highlight is we continue to develop value-based partnerships with physician and physician practices across the country. You know, in the traditional fee-for-service system as physicians, we had become really incentivized to practice volume-based medicine. So the system incentivized you know, the number of encounters we have with patients reacting to problems rather than upfront time to prioritize preventative care. A large part of what we focus on at Somatis is realigning those incentives for physicians to where they should be, which is the same as the patient, so that when the patient does well, the providers and the care delivery system does well also.
0: Thanks for sharing that. And um, we'll dig into many aspects of, of the overview you just shared. To get our listeners sort of all on the same page about the status quo for kidney care, so can you share what the experience looks like for an average patient with chronic kidney disease, uh, CKD, today and as the condition progresses?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So to, to give folks an understanding of what it's like to live with kidney disease or chronic kidney disease, let me first give just a little bit of context or background about how our kidneys function. Because understanding what the kidneys do when they normally function helps folks to understand, I think, what happens when there's disease in the kidneys. So, so most of us, Kate, are born with two kidneys, and our kidneys are really very incredible organs. Uh, I could probably wax much longer than your, in, than your listeners are interested <laughs> in about uh, kidney physiology. But just as a brief highlight, so the, the kidneys weigh really less than a pound combined and they play an absolutely critical role in maintaining our normal physiology. There's an old adage that we say in nephrology that many people think that what the kidneys produce is urine, but really what the kidneys produce is homeostasis. So each kidney is made up of about a million nephrons, which are the basic functional unit in the kidney. And those small filters work together to allow the kidney to perform all the major jobs that it has to keep us healthy. So our kidneys will clean and filter our blood of things like acids and potassium and toxins. They'll regulate our fluid levels in our body to make sure we don't become too dehydrated or have too much fluid in our bodies. They regulate our blood pressure. They balance a lot of the electrolytes in our body, which enable normal functioning for many of our other organs, like our brain or our hearts. And to give you a a perspective on kind of the importance of the kidneys, even though they together make up only about maybe 0.5% or so of our body weight, They receive more than 25% of the heart's output every minute as a reflection of the important work that they do. That's kind of what normal kidney functioning is like. When the kidneys are diseased, they're not able to do these basic functions of the kidney. And so patients can develop symptoms related to any of those issues. So when the kidneys aren't able to regulate our fluid levels, patients can accumulate fluid and they can develop swelling in their legs, fluid in the lungs, or difficulty breathing. When the kidneys are not able to clean and filter the blood, the levels of electrolytes can become too high, and that can cause things like abnormal heart rhythms and buildup of toxins in the blood can lead to confusion and cognitive impairment. We grade kidney disease in five general stages, ranging from CKD-1 through CKD, stage 5. The later stages, CKD stages 4 and 5, are the more severe forms of kidney disease. And then the term end-stage kidney disease, or ESKD. That refers to when patients are no longer able to do the job of cleaning our blood. And so patients would need a form of kidney replacement therapy, so something like a kidney transplant or dialysis treatments in order to survive. One of the challenging aspects of CKD and the patient experience in CKD is that most patients do not really develop significant symptoms until the disease has progressed to its later stages. So that's why early diagnosis and preventative care is essential. But it's harder to do in chronic kidney disease because patients don't experience symptoms earlier on. To give you a a sense of this from the macro perspective, so across the country, the CDC's estimate is that over 37 million U.S. adults are estimated to have some form of kidney disease. And about 40% of those, even when they're in the advanced stages, are not aware of their kidney disease. And so that leads to a lot of downstream problems for patients as they go throughout the disease stage.
0: Can you explain a little bit more about the the transplant process, how often they happen, and why we might not be seeing uh, as many patients uh, getting transplants as we'd like, as well as some of the benefits of that potentially over dialysis?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's two major forms of kidney transplant. So there's living kidney transplantation as well as deceased kidney transplantation. And living kidney transplantation is really the best form of kidney replacement therapy. It usually will allow patients to receive their transplant before they have to start on dialysis, presuming that they have a a donor. And then there's also deceased kidney transplantation, which is the more common form of kidney transplantation, where um, a deceased organ becomes available through the organ sharing network, and then patients are placed on a wait list for that, and then are able to receive a kidney transplant when an organ is found for them. Kidney transplant really is the best Form of kidney replacement therapy for end-stage kidney disease. If the patient is already on dialysis, it will allow them to come off of dialysis, assuming the kidney transplant goes well. It allows them to live a life that's much closer to how they lived prior to when they had kidney disease, in terms of diet and nutrition and the other aspects of patient life, which is really important. Now, there's there's a number of barriers to kidney transplantation, in terms of the availability of organs, the process by which that occurs there's a mismatch between supply and demand in terms of the number of patients who need kidney transplants versus the number of organs that are available. And there's a lot of work going on to try to improve all aspects really of that process.
0: I want to give our listeners a sense of how these care models that we've been discussing translate into healthcare dollars. And about 1% of Medicare patients have ESKD, yet this 1% accounts for 7% of spending. And I believe the average Medicare patient with ESRD costs the system around $90,000. So can you shed some light into the reasons for this really very high spend?
1: Yeah, of course. So, and you're right. So Medicare PMPY for ESKD, is, it's about 10 times or more higher than the average Medicare patient without kidney disease which is closer to probably about 9000 or so with some variability. And you know I think one thing to highlight also Kate is so that cost gap applies not just to ESKD but also to CKD as well. So the Medicare PMPY is about 27 or so thousand dollars for CKD as a whole, which even that is about 3 times higher than the average non CKD Medicare patient. And there's a few reasons for this, and it's important to understand these, and I think you're right. So Medicare has has identified this as a significant challenge for them to work on, given the very high and disproportionate cost uh, that CKD and ESKD patients place for Medicare. So across the board in patients' care journeys, when you look at Medicare data, patients who have CKD compared to those who do not have kidney disease, they have much higher mortality, much higher morbidity. If you look at CKD patients, the hospitalization rates are three or four times higher in late stage CKD than they are in patients who don't have CKD. Readmission rates to the hospital are about 50% higher. Um, ER, or emergency department utilization, is about two times as high as patients who don't have CKD. And the reason for that is that though comorbidities are similar, the, the presence of kidney disease really complicates management, even of common chronic conditions because our kidneys regulate so many functions in our body from blood pressure to blood sugar. And when the kidneys are diseased, it makes the management of many of those conditions more complicated. So for example, high blood pressure or hypertension is very prevalent in the US overall, and it's prevalent among patients with CKD, but successfully controlling blood pressure in the setting of advanced CKD is more challenging. Might need different medications or different approaches or different doses. The same could be true or said of something like congestive heart failure, for instance. Management of fluid overload is a lot more complicated in patients who have advanced kidney disease than in patients who don't. And that clinical complexity, especially in the context of the fragmentation in our healthcare delivery system, translates into higher utilization, so higher hospitalization rates, higher costs associated with that. And the same is true, but certainly much more pronounced for ESKD patients who have even higher hospitalization and readmission utilization as a function of their advanced state of illness. And then you layer on top of that, of course, the actual cost of providing the dialysis treatment itself. So, you know, going to the center and having that treatment three days a week for the vast majority of patients who are on in-center dialysis, there's a significant cost to providing that treatment that factors in, of course, to the very high healthcare expenditure In the setting of ESKD.
0: I think another potentially interesting dynamic around related to this high cost element is the fact that patients with ESKD are eligible for Medicare. So, other than ALS, uh, it's the only condition where people with a specific clinical condition are eligible for Medicare. So, I'm curious about what types of unique dynamics do you think this creates for patients, providers? and other stakeholders in the system? Kind of that EKSD care kind of functions within a single-payer system.
1: I think there's a few things to say there. So one, we're seeing some changes in that in terms of CMS's commitment to innovation in payment models. CMS has launched a new sort of payment model to apply for patients with late-stage CKD as well as ESKD to incentivize things like delaying disease progression, which is good. But, but I think You know, historically, Kate, that's been part of the challenge that we're struggling with in kidney care. The the focus previously across the healthcare system has been on the volume of in center or fee for service dialysis that's provided instead of having an incentive to move upstream, to educate patients earlier in the disease and to delay disease progression to try to reduce the number of patients who progress to need dialysis. And of course, the cost for ESKD, as we described, is much higher than it is for CKD. And so the system would benefit from incentivizing delaying disease progression to reduce the number of patients who need ESKD. But historically, up until recently, those incentives have not really been there.
0: Let's transition into chatting more about how somatis is focused on reducing the likelihood of disease progression as well as lowering the cost of care, as you were saying, um, moving more towards a value-based paradigm from the historical fee-for-service one that really dominated not only the sector of healthcare, but really the system at large. I'd love to hear some details about how somaticis care model is impacting a few areas that are central to the experience of patients with ESKD. So would love to start with home care as it's one that we've alluded to a few times. So how is Somatis really focused on not only transitioning patients to receive dialysis in the home, but then also supporting them in that care plan once they start?
1: Yeah, of course. You know, and I think as we described that, Kate, because at Somatis, we, we take risk for patients' clinical quality outcomes as well as their total cost of care. So we will only do well when the patient does well. And then we've really carefully designed our clinical model. To be able to help patients do well and to improve their outcomes a big part of that is home care certainly so our, our clinical models both very individualized to each patient but we take a very holistic view as well quarter providing good kidney care is providing good whole patient care so that means we focus on addressing not only the kidney specific issues whether that's ckd or eskd issues but also comorbidity specific issues like diabetes or high blood pressure or cardiovascular disease as well as issues related to barriers in access to care and issues related to social determinants of health and in psychosocial care needs. And we've been very deliberate to build our model of care across all of those areas so that we can meet each patient where they are and address comprehensively what their needs are. Executing on that, we've built a really robust technology platform So we'll incorporate data from a multitude of sources, and then we'll use best-in-class predictive analytics to help us predict or identify which patients are at high risk of utilization events, like going to the hospital or going to the ER, which patients are at very high risk of disease progression. And we believe a lot in the value of care delivery at home. And so we've hired multidisciplinary field-based care teams across the country. So those are comprised of nurse care managers, patient health advocates or community health workers, social workers, dietitians, nurse practitioners, physicians who are able to meet with patients in their homes, identify their care needs, and then really serve as an extension of their physician's practice in the home. And I think in clinic, one of the things I learned, Kate, is that I would see patients in clinic, but it would be very hard for me to know what was going on in their home environment, which was often a major driver of barriers in care or barriers in access. And so our teams will really kind of serve as physicians, eyes and ears in the home to identify issues that will be very hard for us in clinic to identify a loose rug and you know, the hallway between the bedroom and the bathroom that's a fall risk, disordered uh, medications or looking at the fridge to see patients understanding about their nutrition plan. Those are all areas which are really important to focus on for the patient comprehensively but you need to have a presence in the home to be able to do that. And so we built our model to do that. And I think the other part you know, in your question was how do we delay disease progression? Because that's really a major primary focus for us is how can we most optimally engage patients earlier on in their disease stage in CKD to delay their disease progression? So for the earlier stage CKD patients, we take a really strong focus on primary care, So we'll identify who are the subset of even the early stage patients who have risk factors for rapid kidney disease progression and need to be prioritized to have an earlier evaluation by a nephrologist. Remember, for many early stage patients, they may have no symptoms. And so we'll work closely with the patient to educate them, work with their PCP on the importance of getting them plugged into appropriate or early nephrology care, even while we'll work with them to focus on many of their chronic comorbid conditions. Now, about half of our patients have diabetes, over 90% have high blood pressure, about half will have cardiovascular disease or congestive heart failure. So as a platform, we actually spend a lot, lot of time managing a host of chronic conditions which track together with kidney disease. And we do that because for a few reasons. So one, it's good for the patient right, as we manage their other chronic comorbidities that'll improve their health. But secondly, it's core to being able to be effective to delay disease progression. About two thirds or so of incident ESKD cases in the US each year are due to diabetes and hypertension. And so managing those two chronic conditions alone goes a really long way to delaying disease progression. I think the other big part of that is medications. So we'll work closely to make sure that patients have access to and are on the right medications to delay their disease progression.
0: Something that struck me as you were speaking was just how many types of different care providers. Many who are not employed by somatis need to be involved in a patient's care. So that could be their PCP, the nephrologist, mental health providers. Um, As you mentioned, diabetes is a main comorbidity for kidney disease. So potentially endocrinologists or cardiologists. So really a whole host of providers. So if you could dig into a bit more how somatis incorporates providers in the market external to your organization into your care model, realizing that Somatis is in risk-based contracts, but these other providers might be external to them. Um, I'd love to hear more about sort of how you partner with these providers over time in order to reach successful outcomes for your patients.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's something we think a lot about. You know, we, we, we really feel that the patient physician relationship is paramount. Because of our incentive structure, because we take risk for patients' outcomes, their clinical outcomes, as well as their total cost of care outcomes, we're able to work with our physician partners to realign that incentive and restore it for them so that the physician's incentives becomes aligned again with the patient's incentives. So we've structured our model to be an extension of our partner physicians, especially our nephrologist partners, who are really the central driver of care for late-stage CKD and ESKD patients. I think you touched on a really important point, Kate, which is that Patients with CKD and ESKD rarely have kind of just that as their clinical problem. The prevalence of comorbid conditions is very high in this patient population. And so, though nephrologists are tend to be the central driver of care for late-stage patients with kidney disease, it is really important to factor into the model the need to collaborate with other physicians. So with PCPs, of course, but also with some of the other specialists you mentioned. So we'll work a lot with endocrinologists for diabetes care, with cardiologists for cardiovascular care, um, as well as other specialists as well. And being able to do that in a way that gives the patient a cohesive experience is really important. If you think about this from the patient's perspective, patient may be juggling multiple appointments with different specialists with different medication lists and different prescriptions coming from each appointment it can be very overwhelming and very difficult to navigate the care process as a patient in this in this system and that's even if you have a really full understanding of everything that's going on which of course not all patients do and we can support practice operations as well and so our teams you know will go because they're all local you know, they'll spend time in the patient's home. They can spend time in the, in the practice's offices if that's helpful. Now, nephrologists and physicians are the, are the center of care delivery, and we really work to come alongside them to enable them to deliver better care for the patients as they, as they have always wanted to deliver. And to have, also have to have access to share in the economic value and in the savings that they generate when they're able to do that. And that's really the beauty of value-based care in this way, Because our incentives are aligned with the patient's outcome, we're able to then align the physician's incentives with that of the patient so that all parties, the payer, the provider, the patient, us, we're all working towards the same objective, which is keeping the patient healthy and having an improved outcome for them.
0: That segues well into my next question. And we've sort of been dancing around this a bit or or mentioning it, but not diving into it. That is around how CMMI has been exploring a number of ways to better address CKD and ESKD because as you put it, due to the really high spend for for patients with these conditions, uh, CMS has identified this as an area that needs greater investment and testing in order to ideally improve quality and outcomes and reduce costs. So over the years, they've proposed the comprehensive end-stage renal disease care model, CDC, as well as some additional models in more recent years, including KCC, which is aimed at helping providers take on risk and deliver care, such as transplants that decelerate disease progression. So seems really aligned with uh, the type of work that Somatis is investing in. To start, can you summarize what we've learned from, from these tests to date?
1: I think one of the important things that we've seen is that CMS has really rightly recognized the need to incentivize delaying disease progression. There's a few major developments that have come from CMS in this space. Let's say one of the the first in recent years was back in 2019 with the Advancing American Kidney Health Executive Order. So that laid out a few core principles and goals related to slowing the number of patients who progressed to ESKD increasing the proportion of ESKD patients who receive either home dialysis treatment or a kidney transplant, and then finally increasing the number of kidneys that are available through transplant. And so some of the more recent payment models, the reference of KCC, electric kidney care choices, and all of the options within that are essentially a reflection of the goals that were laid out in the Advancing American Kidney Health Initiative. And these new payment models essentially allow for a direct contracting model with CMS that has stemmed from this. I think for many nephrologists, these KCC models are a really big step forward into diving into value-based care. This has happened in primary care. Previously, in the last 15 or 20 years, we've seen a huge amount of innovation and progress in primary care around providers and PCPs taking risk for their patient panels and being able to align incentives together with the patients. So we're really happy to see these kind of regulatory tailwinds bolstering the commitment that CMS has and expanding that into value-based kidney care as well.
0: Definitely seems like we're we're going through a time when there's a lot of attention on and investment in kidney care for the reasons that, that we discussed. So I too am excited to see how it continues to evolve. A follow-up question I have about this that I think relates to most healthcare companies, but especially one where there is so much investment and, and attention from the, the government. I'm I'm wondering how you think it impacts or doesn't impact business operations and planning as a business when operating in a space that is really highly dependent on policy and potential potential changes?
1: It's a great question. You know, I, I think we've seen things evolve over time in the last few years. So part of it is certainly the regulatory component. And I think we've seen a lot of tailwinds actually in that. We, we started this back in 2016 before many of these events occurred, the Advanced American Kid Initiative or the CKCC model. But we're excited to, to see CMS invest in this as well. But I think you know, to our earlier discussion on the 21st Century Cures Act, even apart from the CMS investment in these models, because ESKD patients are now eligible for Medicare Advantage plans, we've seen a lot of demand and a lot of interest from health plans, so Medicare Advantage plans, who are increasingly caring for patients with ESKD to find a solution to help them manage their total cost of care. Because the the cost and the complexity of the patients is the same, right? Whether that is a patient who's on Medicare fee for service and that's accruing to Medicare, or whether that's a PSKD patient who selects to go on a Medicare Advantage plan, and then that cost is accruing to the Medicare Advantage plan, they will still need a, a plan or a solution to be able to manage the complexity of these patients to reduce their cost of care and to improve their outcomes. So I think that's an important component as well. We've seen a lot of growth in that over the last few years. And I expect to see that continue to grow as well. You know, I think you mentioned kind of how that impacts business operations at Somatis and how we're thinking about that. I, I think for us, it's a very exciting time. I think as a nephrologist, certainly I'm really optimistic. And you know, I, I think we've seen a lot of change in the last few years. We're, I think, going to see even more change in the coming years. And we're really excited at Somatis to be leading that change. Um, Even just in the time that I've been at Somatis, I've seen really rapid growth to drive this transformation across the country. And so that's really been exciting to be part of that. And I think we expect to see a lot more growth as we plan for that in the next several years. Um, We're actually planning on doing what will likely be our last private round of financing starting in April. And so we have an internal team working on an optimal process for that with a select group of investors. So if, if any of your listeners or anyone wants more information, They can, of course, feel free to contact me on that offline, and I'll plug them into the team at Somatis. But I think there's a lot of more great work to be done, and uh, we're really excited, I think, and delighted to be able to drive this improvement in care for even more patients in the coming years.
0: Three other areas that I, I want to discuss that I see as really closely tied to kidney care, but potentially less directly than some of the the other areas that we've discussed are caregiver support, social determinants of health, as well as reducing inequity. Across these areas, where do you see the most exciting improvements happening for patients with kidney disease?
1: Yeah, those are all such important points. One of the major areas for us that we have prioritized and are focusing on is on health equity and understanding the impact of social determinants of health uh, on disparities and outcomes. I think kidney care has been marked by very significant disparities in outcomes over the last several decades. CKD disproportionately impacts BIPOC patient populations. So, you know, by the CDC's estimate, African-American patients make up about 13% of the U.S. population, but over a third of dialysis patients. CKD is much more prevalent among African-American patients and Hispanic-American patients as well, and if you think about it, the, the first year mortality rate for ESKD is about 20%. The five-year survival is roughly about 40% or so. And so these disparities in kidney health, you know, the, those uh, statistics are often cited because they're from the CDC, but if you put them in the context of the mortality that I just described that's associated with ESKD, it becomes clear, I think, you know, that dis- these disparities in kidney health have massive implications for vulnerable patient populations. And so there's urgency in having a solution to address some of these disparities and outcomes for vulnerable patients. We see that across a number of different areas. In recent years, I mentioned new therapeutic classes like SGLT2 inhibitors, which can delay disease progression, which is a really important factor and a really important thing to address for ESKD. And they have dramatic benefit in improving mortality but if patients can't or don't actually get access to these medications, then we won't see the needed benefit that is needed to improve health equity. And so this applies to, to many aspects in social determinants of health. It, it impacts medication affordability. It impacts even something as, as simple as transportation. You know, I'll give you an example of something that seems very straightforward, but actually is a really very real barrier for patients, which is transportation. We see this all the time in our patient population. So, you know, CKD patients, they're on a number of chronic medications. They'll need, for example, diuretics, which are water pills to help them manage their fluid levels. And something as simple as if you don't have a ride to get to the pharmacy to pick up your diuretic prescription and you're not able to take it, then for the patient, their fluid levels will build up and they may end up having a very expensive hospitalization for fluid overload. Similarly, for a dialysis patient, when dialysis patients miss even one treatment, they're at significantly higher risk of having an inpatient hospitalization, but getting to and from their treatment needs a ride, right? They need a transportation source to be able to get to the treatment. And so in our traditional environment, there really is no incentives. And as physicians, we don't have any resources to try and intervene upfront on something as simple as a ride. But at Symantis, because we're at risk for the total cost of care for the patient, we are able to do things like help patients address transportation gaps so that a you know $15 car ride to and from the pharmacy or to and from a dialysis center may help a patient be healthy and stay healthy at home and avoid a very costly hospitalization.
0: Yeah, I think your your example about transportation wall, it might seem micro, is is indeed a really good kind of summary of of why value based models especially for this this population make a ton of sense. So bringing together all the things that we have have discussed what are the three main ways you expect the standard of care for CKD and ESKD to evolve in the next 5 years.
1: A few things that come to mind are number one increased attention and prioritization of screening and early identification of CKD, you know, so we'll we'll partner with organizations like the National Kidney Foundation or others to be able to increase patient and community awareness, education, and understanding of chronic kidney disease. I think that's a really important lever in our aim of trying to delay disease progression. A really important part of that is patient understanding and patient awareness that they have kidney disease, of what kidney disease is, and the importance of managing kidney disease early, even when it's asymptomatic. You know, it's always hard, right? If you're not experiencing symptoms or something doesn't seem to be a pressing problem today, it's harder to focus on preventative care. But helping patients understand the importance of that and working with primary care doctors and nephrologists and other physicians to be able to prioritize that, I think, is a really important component. A second one is on novel treatments and therapeutics. So that's something that is new in kidney care in the last five or 10 years, and and it's very welcome, I think, the innovation that we've seen. We're very excited about and very keen on focusing on improving adoption of medications which delay disease progression, and that's a major area of focus for us with our physician partners, primary care doctors, nephrologists, et cetera. And these access to having these novel interventions, so new therapeutics, new medications, new treatment classes, I think are going to be an, a very important component of the story of how we're able to delay disease progression in the U.S. And then the third one, I would say, I, I think is what we started some of the discussion with around kidney transplants, around home dialysis. You know, for, for those patients who do reach end-stage kidney disease, increased innovation around being able to do dialysis at home to remove barriers and making that process easier for patients to do at home As well as on improving some of the barriers in kidney transplantation, I think are going to be an important part of the story of kidney care. So I think all three of those areas are probably, I think, the major areas that we'll see evolve in the coming years.
0: Wrapping up our conversation, I just have one final question, and that's more going back to your personal experience as a clinician who made the transition to working at a startup, at least for now. What advice do you have for clinicians who are considering? joining a care delivery startup.
1: I'm very optimistic about the innovation in care delivery and in value-based care that's occurring across healthcare overall. You know, there's innovation in biotech, there's innovation in health IT and technology and care delivery. And I think it's really important for these organizations to have clinicians who are guiding the work that they do to ensure that the service or the product or you know whatever it is that the startup is focused on is Something that will ultimately solve an unmet need, which is present in the delivery of care to patients. That's something that at Somatis, I think, we focus on every day. You know, everyone in the organization, from our clinical teams, our operations teams, our technology teams, everybody has that same central focus, which is how can what I'm working on, this project or this initiative or this you know, work improve care for one of our Somatis patients. And I think that's something that's core to the operating system or, or the blood or the culture at somatis, I should say, is everyone is focused on how to improve care for patients. One piece of advice I think that I would give for clinicians who are thinking about making a transition to a care delivery startup of some kind would be to continue to practice medicine and see patients. That's something I think that's very important to me. I think many of us who take on these roles like to do so because we're trying to have a broad impact and on healthcare and on patients, whether that is through being an investigator in an academic organization or through public policy or through an organization like Somatis. But I think continuing to see patients is important for us as clinicians. It helps keeps us grounded, I think, in the reason why we're doing this work in the first place, uh, which is to improve patient care. And patient care happens one patient at a time. I think that perspective is important to keep in mind it's even as we work to improve some of the systems and incentives and other challenges able to improve broad care across the system.
0: I, I love that and feel like it's a good note to end on. So uh, Dr. Mikhail, thank you so much for joining me on The Pulse. I really enjoyed our conversation. I, I truly learned a ton about CKD and ESKD and, and kidney care at large, both sort of at the micro organ level, but also at a systemic level. So So thank you so much for your time.
1: Oh, thank you, Kate. I really enjoyed our conversation as well. It's been a pleasure. So thanks so much for having me on the podcast.